Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, we have a very special guest joining us this week. Yes, we do, for sure. The perfect person to wrap up the Harry Palmer series. The the owner and creator of the Dayton Dossier website, uh, which I've actually referenced when I'm doing my research for these films in the past, it is none other than Rob Mallows. Rob, welcome aboard. Good evening, gentlemen. Nice to be on board. See, the accent is already, already better than mine. He, he's bringing up the class of the joint. He's <laughs> already more eloquent. Uh, damn, I thought I was the good British-sounding guy on here. Well, <laughs> whenever uh, accent decided, it's great to be on your podcast and following in uh, footsteps of other uh, interesting discussions on both Dayton and uh, other spy stuff. Particularly, I heard uh, Shane Whaley a couple of weeks ago, uh, who I know from the Spybury podcast. So, yeah, looking forward to a good discussion. I feel like the Harry Palmer films have really pushed us to book really strong guests because Harry Palmer is such a acquired taste and in North America where I am not very well known at all and so it's actually led to some really interesting people coming on to talk about a franchise that most of my entire life I had no idea even existed. Yeah I I, put it frankly he's very British and uh, I guess he he lacks a certain degree of this panache, perhaps, that a James Bond or a James uh, Jason Bourne has for an international audience. But um, you know, uh, they're more home. They're, they have a certain charm, I think. Let's put it that way. Uh, all three movies and the other two as well. We're going to talk about later. But yeah, um, uh, I like them. I like the stuff that Len Dayton writes. I like James Bond as well. I like a lot of spy fiction. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd be interested to hear your reactions as well. Yeah, well, I'm just curious. You run the Dayton Dossier blog where you really give the history of Len Dayton, the author, the creator of Harry Palmer, although not Harry Palmer in the stories. Am I right? In terms of actually the name, yeah. Yeah. Um, but how did that all begin? How did uh, you know you decide to take this deep dive into Len Dayton? Uh, well, I guess uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a reader and I'm a collector. Spy, I read a lot of spy fiction. I read a lot of fiction generally. Watch a lot of movies. Um, I started a website about eleven years ago, just as something to do to test out uh, uh, my web building skills. Um, and it's just started from there. I had the website first, then moves on to Facebook. There's been a sort of Dayton Dossier Facebook page for about I don't know, eight or nine years or so. It's a small little community, but uh, through it, uh, I've made some interesting. Uh, you know, global uh, contacts and friends from around the world who either are new to Len Dayton or who read it a lot. Uh, one of which is, you know, uh, Shane Whaley, a host of the Spybury podcast. Uh, and I was on the uh, inaugural episode talking about Len's work. So it's just, I'm just a fan of the collector, really. Expert? Phew, I'm not sure, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, I mean, when you began, I- I'm curious how big was your knowledge of Len Dayton when you started the blog and how much has it grown like were you just kind of a casual enthusiast when you dove in or were you already someone who'd read the books multiple times uh I'm I'm a I was a casual enthusiast the 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 real uh if you call it Len Dayton expert if you will is a friend of his called Edward Millward Oliver the chap who wrote the Len Dayton companion in the 80s um he is Mr. Dayton he uh, has known him for years uh, he's 
uh, rumoured to be writing a sort of biography of him at the moment as well. Um, me, I'm a sort of an amateur very much in this game. But over the years through, I mean, it's primarily through collecting the books initially I started in. But then uh, the website and through Facebook. Uh, yeah, a lot of searching online for news clippings and uh, interesting books, ephemera, um, stuff about the movies. And it's through the website I finally uh, actually managed to get in touch with Len and, you know, from time to time I, I've had lunch with him and uh, um, chatted with him as well online. So, uh, and they all say never meet your heroes. Not that he's a hero as such, but I certainly an author I enjoy. He's actually a really nice chap and, uh, you know, very private in retirement. But uh, what I do is uh, through the website and through the Facebook page, just it's nice to connect with people who sort of share the same interest and through that you know we chat about the books collecting the movies tv stuff it's it's quite good fun really hmm. and we should note that we are actually recording this episode on his birthday right it is indeed uh mr dayton is 92 years old today that's quite a quite an innings yeah definitely i'm i'm actually quite a big fan of the uh, dayton dossier uh group on facebook because unlike the spyberry bunch the dayton dossier guys haven't put a fatwa up against me just yet <laughs> so uh yeah they're not hunting hunting me down or calling from my head so uh, i, I yeah, won't ask what I, you I did have a home there which is nice <laughs> uh well it was my thoughts on the ipcris file uh, if that was what it was yes well uh, the global well, hunt for scott began i think there is a room for every opinion on on any movie really so uh I, if you if you don't like it if you do like it the important thing is we have a good discussion. Well, um, you know, speaking of the movies, as we seg into today's project, um, the first three films, the major theatrical motion pictures um, revolving around Harry Palmer, were you a fan of them? Um, did you feel they captured the spirit of the books? I like them. Uh, of the three, my favourite is Funeral in Berlin. Oh, interesting. But I think all three have a, they have a certain wit and charm to them. They're clearly not... Um, not as uh, bombastic and as sort of theatrical as the Bond movies or, or other movies in the era. Uh, I mean, particularly I like them because I, uh, I live and work in London, uh, grew up in London. And uh, London, I think, is always one of the um, main actually sort of standout characters in both the books and the movies. So it's actually quite, uh, it's quite, both all three movies, but particularly the first two, always give a very good impression of uh, how cool london was in the 60s it's nice to know i'm joined by another londoner actually. oh right okay beckon and posse here <laughs> oh no oh, south no. london yeah <laughs> yeah I, oh, I know where you are uh, west is best my friend west okay. is best well we, we let's not fall out <laughs> over this sorry that's a parochial local discussion <laughs> but yeah no the movies all three i like them um, uh, and I, I i think i i i obviously read the books first i didn't watch them uh, I've watched them, I think, for watched Ipcrest File first, then Billion Dollar Brain, and then Funeral in Berlin. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, they're good knockabout stuff. And, and Kane is, is, is the standout feature in all three of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, it is an interesting franchise, and we'll talk about it more in the wider view later in this episode. But um, it's a journey I very much enjoyed, and just the, noticing the differences movie to movie to movie. And... Uh, that continues right into today, right, Scott? Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, very much so. Now, I guess that brings us through to what we're doing. So, Cam? Yeah. What films are we covering this week? Films. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are going to talk about 
the, I guess, 1995 film Bullet to Beijing and the 1996 film uh, Midnight in St. Petersburg. Uh, two movies shot back to back, aired either you know straight to video or on TV, depending where you lived, uh, featuring Michael Caine returning to the role of Harry Palmer. We're going to basically do Bullet to Beijing first, then we're going to talk about the film, and then we're going to move on to Midnight in St. Petersburg, talk about the film, and then wrap up at the end. So, Bullet to Beijing. Now, usually we would do the letterbox.com synopses, but frankly, it's far too long. So we're moving over to imdb.com. Bullet to Beijing. Retired British spy Harry Palmer, Sir Michael Caine, is called back into service by his government to help prevent North Korea from getting its hands on a deadly virus called the Red Death. Well, that about sums it up there, Scott. I think uh, pretty compactly there. Yeah, very succinct. I appreciate that. Maybe we should look at IMDb more often on some of these larger ones. But uh, I know this is a TV movie cam, but do you have anything about the background on it? Well, I feel like Rob may be the one to fill in some blanks here because there is not a lot on the development of this film that I could find. Um, It seems to have really began with um, exec producer Harry Allen Towers getting the rights to um, to the Harry Palmer character. And bringing on a few other producers, notably John Dunning and Andre Link, who produced the 1981 horror classic, My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> and they were like, okay, we've got to reunite the team. So we're bringing in a director, George Mahalka, who directed My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> they were like, this is it, guys, our follow-up project. And... um. The director, George Mahalka, is one of those guys where you look at his filmography, it's amazing. It's just a string of B-movies and random TV projects. Nothing really of note. There's just one project I want to cite because the title is so amazing, and that is Deceptions 2, Edge of Deception. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what the third one's called. I don't know, but uh, the film was written by the exec producer, Harry Allen Towers, under the name Peter Welbeck, and Peter Welbeck, his writing credits are also incredible. A lot of Fu Manchu movies, the Gore franchise, which was like a sword and sorcery knockoff series that I actually watched with my friend. Um, They're terrible, but very funny. He also did some Jack London adaptations, but I recommend anyone who just wants some entertainment for a few minutes, log on. To IMDb, go to Harry Allen Towers, you know, writing credentials and just take in the joy of reading the titles this man has been associated with because they're really, really fun. Well, it just sounds like a lot of schlock, really. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's all schlock, but it's glorious schlock. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this movie, not a lot in terms of the production. It was, I think, shot <laughs> pretty fast and loose in, uh, in Russia, but In the 2010 memoir that Michael Caine wrote, he called this the worst professional experience ever, which I think is fascinating for a man who just previously, the year before, had featured in Steven Seagal's directorial debut on Deadly Ground. (laughs) Wow. That is damning. He'd also done George Jaws, uh, is it Jaws three? I think as well. Um, So he's he has four. Jaws four. Jaws four. He has form in uh, doing the odd terrible movie he has a classic quote from jaws 4 that i know cam likes to to say so um i i, th- I don't think he's that worried about jaws 4 
but uh no he made a lot of money off jaws 4 i don't know that he made as much money off this one but i was really intrigued by the fact him saying this was the worst professional experience ever because i mean michael caden's been in lots of schlock lots of great stuff but he was one of those guys who would always just keep working and you see you would see him in a movie like the swarm for example where he's battling bees uh you know, he would juggle that with like a Woody Allen film or, you know, showing up in 92 a couple years before this in Muppet Christmas Carol, where he's so much fun. So he's a guy who I always felt had kind of seen the highs and lows, but apparently this was the low. Um, in terms of the details as to why there was big problems, he cited there was a lot of issues with the mafia um, in Russia at the time when they were shooting this. The Russian uh, mafia base was the hotel the cast and crew were living in. <laughs> and so Michael Caine ended up having to have bodyguards at all times. Um, he said they also were using Geiger counters on the food due to lingering effects of Chernobyl. <laughs> so, yep. But he said the, the straw that broke the camel's back was he was at Len Film Studios where they shot much of this movie and he had to go to the washroom. And so they pointed him in the direction of the bathroom and he said the toilets were so disgusting, he couldn't even use them. He had to go and urinate uh, against the side of the soundstage. But, but Cam, he did this all for the art. That's right. That's right. And it's weird because as I, you know, have said, I think uh, off the air, but like these movies were um, shown internationally uh, straight to video in 95. But like here in uh, North America, where I am, like they didn't show on US TV until August 16th, 1997. So like a couple of years after they were being shown, um, you know, in the UK and Europe and Japan, places like that. So real bit of a delay there. They were it seems at some point considered for theatrical distribution, but that was not the case to be. Although I did find a little nugget that, um, that uh, bullet to Beijing did play in Montreal for a very, very limited run. I have no idea why either. Do you know Rob? No, um, I think that's the case. It was shown in a few Canadian cinemas and apparently some Russian cinemas as well. So um, lucky Russians. <laughs> Were they lucky? <laughs> No, I mean it's it's rather ironic that uh, you know Kane and and the crew were dealing with the Russian mafia, given that that's sort of one of the themes running through the the sort of the plots of both movies. But uh, so it's a case of sort of real life imitating art, or the other way around. I'm not sure. But uh, well, do you? I mean, apart from what Cam found out there, Rob, do you have anything about Bullet to Beijing that you know from your your vast archives? Uh, well, I mean. I, I, no, in the sense of there, there is not a lot out there. Even on, uh, and if you haven't referenced it before on your other um, podcasts, um, there is a, a website, the Harry Palmer website, uh, run by a Dutchman called Case Stam. He is, uh, as far as I know, the, the, the person who's uncovered the most about these two movies. And it's not a lot. Um, it's... Um, it, it's in the movie credits and titles. It's portrayed as Len Dayton's Harry Palmer. Um, I've not actually ever asked this of Len directly, but I'm pretty sure he um, didn't have a huge amount to do it other than probably writing uh, his signature on a sort of contract and saying, "Yeah, go ahead." Um, he uh, has had some generally in the past some quite <laughs> challenging experiences with the. Uh, uh, TV producers, so um, I don't think he suffers fools gladly. So I'm sure it's it's definitely not something that I don't think Len had a lot of creative input into. Indeed, any creative input into, which shows. Yeah, the only thing I could find was that he said basically 
if they could get Michael Caine back, he'd put his name on it. Yeah, I think that's broadly so, it, which really. Which is amazing. Uh, without, without Michael Caine, the movie has nothing uh, to uh, <laughs> offer. At least with Harry, Ma- Michael Caine, it has something at least. And uh, that's not saying much. <laughs> so we're already giving a clue to listeners that uh, Bullet to Beijing uh, and its sister film in St. Petersburg are not uh, shining examples of the spy movie genre. What are you talking about? These are the best <laughs> TV movies we've covered so far. Yeah. You see, my point of view is, yeah, I, I watched them both over the last uh, three or four days just to sort of refresh myself. Um, I've watched them a, a few times, not many. They are, yeah, yeah, they're not great. For me, the word that came to my mind is that they have curiosity value. Uh, one is seeing Michael Caine or seeing Harry Palmer, if you will, um, in a sort of down at heel, dressed not in the sort of uh, a sharp sort of 60s uh, suit walking down Soho, but in a sort of anorak walking down some grotty street in St. Petersburg. So there's a sort of interesting sort of uh, angle about sort of seeing a sort of familiar character in reduced circumstances. Plus there is also the sort of uh, so the, again, a curiosity value in just seeing sort of the fact that they were filming in Russia fairly soon after the sort of fall of communism is in itself sort of interesting. Um, the fact that the product they came up with is not that great um, is sort of by the by. So seeing you know what Russia was like in 1995, and it looks a pretty gro- grobby and sort of down at hill place, has some value. But yeah, if you're expecting uh, lots of action and lots of plot twists and great acting, this isn't your movie. And that's being well, fair. I, I am curious <laughs> if you have. <laughs> I'm curious if you have any idea because there are, you know, unadapted Len Dayton, Harry Palmer spy novels like Horse Underwater or whatever. Um, like, do you have any idea or like what the thinking was behind why these two movies bullet to Beijing and the one we're going to talk about in a few minutes were entirely original stories? Um, I don't have any, uh, particular insight on there. My suspicion is that as, as with a lot of things in the movie business, it was probably money and opportunity involved. Somebody saw an opportunity, uh, you know, with, uh, I imagine that filming in Russia in 1995 was pretty cheap. Uh, I imagine that there was probably a gap in Harry uh, Michael Caine's schedule. Uh, there was probably a, Mr. Towers was probably at a loose end, and you know the, the, <laughs> the fates combined to bring them together in St. Petersburg to film these two movies. I suspect there was no more sort of uh, strategic thinking than that. It makes sense from a financial standpoint. I imagine the amount you have to pay uh, Len Dayton for making the Ipquis file or, you know, Horse Underwater, it's far more than an original script lightly yeah. touching on his character. Lightly. Well, they certainly save money there, yeah. And they save money on the acting as well. <laughs> <laughs> well take that back about Jason Connery, how dare you? <laughs> well, I mean, is there anything else background-wise, gents, or should I lead us in? No, lead us on in. Okay, well, we're going to quick-fire this, so... Thoughts on the film as a whole, Rob. You're our guest. You kind of sort of telegraph what you think of it already, but bullet to Beijing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's as I said up front. It's not a great movie, but you know it's sort of watchable. Um, I, I didn't 
when I sat watching it a couple of evenings ago, I didn't tear my hair out. You know, it has some interesting elements to it. It has, uh, you know, Michael Gam quite a number of sort of English character actors in there, like Michael Gambon as Alex. He does a passable Russian. Jason Connery <sighs> is not a great actor. And he's provides a particularly. <laughs> You're wooden... trying to be nice. Well, You're trying to be nice. Uh, uh, wood... <laughs> All right, let, let's let's be frank. He, he's as wooden as a, as a cyborg in this movie. But you know, um, it has the added attraction of the uh, rather uh, attractive Mia Sara, uh, Ferris Bueller's girlfriend, uh, playing the uh, role of Natasha. Um, and you know, uh, even though it's not on the DVD I've got, there is a, a fleeting. Uh, appearance by Sue Lloyd, the actor who plays Jean in the original Ipcrest file. So you know, there are some, uh, for sort of, uh, I guess, Harry Palmer fans, there are some interesting little sort of um, nods back to the original three movies. Um, there's this sort of suggestion that uh, Jason Connery's character Nikolai uh, is possibly Harry Palmer's sort of uh, illegitimate son. Uh, as I say, there's you know there's the appearance from Gene, uh, uh, his love in the Impress file. So you know it, uh, and the plot is you know it's a sort of half chase movie, half sort of heist movie. Uh, there's double crossing and triple crossing. Uh, there's drugs involved. Uh, the Chinese, the North Koreans. You know, it, it's like somebody's taken all the sort of ingredients from a sort of uh, my first spy movie cookbook throwing them into a pot but forgot to add some seasoning you know that sort of thing it's there's all the elements are there but it doesn't really hang together well rob really put the bullet in <laughs> beijing but uh cam what about you okay so this was one that i kind of dreaded going into because it's like how good is this going to be when compared against a lot of the film craft that was happening on the first three but it was a movie that I actually found in some ways a little bit entertaining in terms of reintroducing Harry Palmer into the 90s. Because, like, what is that like? And where this character's at, being forced into retirement. We see that he's still got kind of that ladies' man kind of vibe we saw in the Ipcris file. You know, he's um, talking to his uh, you know girlfriend, Sue, uh, who was played by Sue Lloyd in the original, on the phone, which is kind of fun. There's a cut scene that... Rob alluded to. It was not in my version, but I'm going to have to check it out on YouTube. Um, it's in the extended version of the movie, which I didn't get to see. So, But in terms of the movie itself, it was, boy, it was baffling in terms of plotting. I mean, there are, you know, as Rob alluded, so many t uh, double and triple crosses that it was like just head spinning at a certain point, trying to make sense of what was going on. Um, I feel like it's the type of movie you want to whiteboard when you're watching it just to keep track of all the players and <laughs> the little red vial that's being, you know, that Harry's carrying throughout and what that means and why it's there and who put it there and et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of like a, a spy plot, um, not great, especially when you compare it to the really, I think, well-honed, convoluted, you could say, story of, say, Funeral in Berlin, which is definitely confusing but I feel like it does pay off and it all makes sense psychologically and within the uh, the world of all these players. Whereas this one, it just felt like they were doing a lot of those crosses for no reason. And with characters who I didn't really even understand who they were, like the CIA guy. Um, and I also noticed this movie had a lot of um, what I would call Canon Films action, which Canon Films made a lot of, you know, kind of B action movies through the 80s. And this movie had a ton of those moments where it would just cut to like a really 
kind of cheesy shootout where like a character falls onto an electrical wire, stuff like that. The sort of thing you'd see in like the Death Wish sequels. Um, but overall, like it was not good, but I found it somewhat watchable. It does, if that makes sense. It's not something I would recommend to anyone really, unless you are really into the world of Harry Palmer, but I did find it kind of interesting. Uh, I, I agree. You can, it's a, you can spend a, a reasonable 90 minutes with a sort of cup of tea and a sort of, a, a, and a snack and just, you know, it's perfectly, as you say, it's watchable. Mm-hmm. I think what you've identified is that apart from perhaps Harry Palmer, given that he is played by Michael Caine, who even in a bad movie is pretty good. Very few of the characters you actually really either understand or care for. But it does have, you know, some, as I say, some sort of strange, almost like funny, unintentionally elements. Like uh, you can tell that basically they had the use or somebody said, we have an abandoned airport nearby. Um, Let's use it. Because at one point, um, Colonel Gradsky, who's this sort of very uh, 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 a pound store version of Colonel Stock, uh, says, wait a minute, I know somebody in Bratsk. And that sort of, they switch to this air, airfield where they sort of, um, uh, after sort of chasing after this train. And, and it's, it's just bizarre. Um, and it has nothing, it doesn't really advance the plot in any way, but it's just like, I'm sure it's because they had uh, the use of an airfield for a couple of days, you know? I figured it was either that or because they wanted to work in a North by Northwest homage because you have them on the train and then they get out and they get swooped by a plane. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we got a little bit of a Hitchcock. <laughs> you have to give the actors their dues. I would not want to be up in the air in the sort of rusty Russian air bucket that they filmed in. I mean, it looked like it was about to fall apart. So, you know, fair dues. But what it does for the plot, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, there are parts of it where you know it's a it's a it's a heist or a chase movie on a on a train. So you know, this is sort of a certain element of danger, and they both jump out at one point. You know, and and there are you know there are some sort of modestly good car chases, but you know when the cars and larders and Moscoviches <laughs> and they're all rust buckets, it's not like watching the sort of um, the Fast and the Furious. You know, this is car chases Russian style. <laughs> you know, and so there's a certain comedy value in that. I'm I'm going to jump in, I think, at this point on this film. Everyone knows I'm not a big Harry Palmer guy. That's fine. And I, I came to this film knowing that it had a TV film budget, whatever. And Cam was right. In the beginning, it was quite interesting to see how Harry Palmer was dealing with the 90s. He got shafted once again by the MI5, uh, you know, just chucked out on the street, basically. And he goes to work... Um, doing what he does uh, as a private detective again, like he was doing at the beginning of Billion Dollar Brain. This all makes sense. But the problem with this film stems, I think it has the same issue as Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I'm sure is not a comparison many people have made between these two films. But here we go. I thought the scene where Michael Crane crawled out of the fridge after the nuclear bomb (laughs) was a bit much. It was when they were trying to put Jason Connery over as an action hero and he was swinging from the vines again. It was just... Mm, all, all got too much. much. All got too much. much. <laughs> no, it's just you, you basically you get a character that's kind of beloved in his own way. So Indiana Jones, and then you put him in a story that's bad, and you surround him with characters that he kind of knows from his past, uh, but aren't very interesting. And you just at the beginning of the film, you're like, "Oh, what's going on with Indiana Jones?" And by the end, you can't wait for the film to be finished. 
there's a lot of scenes of characters like Louis, for example, or the CIA guy, Craig, just like running into him and they're like, oh, hey, Harry, how's it going? And it's like, don't, don't fake that familiarity. I don't know who these people are. <laughs> and it's not like they're referencing a character or they even give you a story or reason <laughs> as to why. It's just like, oh, hey, oh, hey. What, what do we get from that? Uh, that Harry has f- uh, friends in Russia? Well, clearly what's missing uh, in these two movies from uh, the first three movies, one of the, like, the crucial elements is what you're missing is the byplay between Harry as a sort of a, a underling, if you will, the sort of a lower, lower rank spy and, and his superiors. I mean, not least on the Russian side, at least, Colonel Stock, but in terms of, you know, uh, Major Dorby, uh, Colonel Ross, that in the first three movies, or at least the first two, is where the gold lies in terms of the back and forth, the repartee, the dialogue. Uh, and they're characters you either sort of uh, you root for or you're, uh, you're, you're turned against. In Bullet to Beijing, uh, you don't get a lot of that. I mean, the most sort of uh, notable sort of, uh, apart from the fact that a lot of the actors are Russian and clearly yep. nobody would have heard of them. Uh, you do get an appearance by Bert Cook, uh, lately of the uh, Pink Panther movies, as the uh, outrageously uh, um, stereotypical Kim Su, uh, je- uh, sort of you know the the ultimate buyer of the Red Death, and his appearance is like you can't get out the fact you can't get out of your mind the fact that it's Cato. Uh, <laughs> He's he's not a great actor as it is, but as as General Kim Su, um, it provides a certain sort of <laughs> it made me laugh, frankly. Um, but yeah, he's an actor though who has presence, and I think that's something that's kind of missing. Like uh, with the Harry Palmer films, the, the previous ones, like I always liked how you know you'd have Colonel Stock would come back or Ross or Dolby only gets the one movie, but he's very memorable. Like they are. Very hmm. fun personalities to watch Harry Palmer bump up against. And I feel like Burt Kwok actually brings that. Like, he actually has that sort of personality, even if the character's not really there on paper and it's pretty stereotypical. I, hmm. I wanted more of that because a lot of the characters, regardless of the talent of the people, you know, portraying these characters, you know, you look at, like, um, you know, Jason Connery as Nick or Mia Sarah, who you referenced, as Natasha. Like, I have nothing against these two actors. I've seen... You know, both of them be fun in other things, but they are not good in this movie. Like, they're playing very one-note, kind of forgettable characters. Like, Mia Sarah's character is a real blank. Like, she barely talks. Well, she's she's given nothing to... She's given hardly anything to say. I think that's one of the challenges, is that, as, it's, as I say, it, it all reflects the fact that this is a movie that either it was produced at sort of either breakneck speed or the budget didn't stretch to uh, allowing more time to develop the characters, or all, all these sort of things. It sort of it um, it has a sort of certain pound shop quality to it. I, I mean, you, we're on Miyasara, so I'll just jump on this bit whilst I have a chance. But did they have to write a scene where she's about to have sex with Michael Caine? And I will point out that Michael Caine was sixty-two <laughs> at the point of filming this film, and Mia was late oh, sorry early 30s uh yeah well i mean to be fair yeah. it is incredibly uncomfortable intentionally <laughs> well it nails that it's probably the only thing in this film that nails what it starts out to do like uh, that's not great and then you know yeah. and let's let's just let's not beat around the bush 
to me, this feels like a let's make it out like uh, Jason Connery is Harry Palmer's son. Yeah. And let's try and build the world for him to take over with his own films. I guess. Although it kind of feels like, you know, you referenced the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where it's like, here's Mutt Williams. Um, guys, can't you wait to see like his movies? And it's like, uh, we're good. Like uh, <laughs> the the idea of Jason Connery spinoffs was not something that really ever crossed my mind watching these, to be fair. But the idea of that is brutal. <laughs> and Scott, I, I fear for the nightmare you were living in thinking you might have to watch Jason Connery films. I, hey, we've got another film of him in, in just a few minutes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and the only other problem I have with this film at a sort of a nitpicky level is, is Michael Gambon's accent. Oh, okay. I, honestly, I didn't have... I, well, Cam, yeah. you notoriously are bad with accents. Yeah, I am. Yeah. He he is dropping in and out of a British accent every sentence. I'm waiting for him to tell me that Harry Potter is a wizard, and then and then just to <laughs> segue back into something about you know plutonium. He's like Harry, Harry, and Palmer's like yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see uh, Harry Palmer play Quidditch. <laughs> I was going to say one, and again, is it's. We are sort of clutching at straws a little here, but one of the uh, sort of uh, sort of semi-interesting aspects of the film, indeed the, the other film we're going to discuss in a second, is the soundtrack. Uh, uh, you know, for prog rock fans to find that sort of, you know, Rick Wakeman, uh, keyboard player of Yes, um, it's a sort of interesting choice. But then again, when you, it's rather like the films, when you compare it with what went before, with the sort of stirring John Barry soundtrack to uh, Ipcrest Farm, the sort of Germanic sort of uh, Sturm und Drang of Conrad Elfers uh, in Funeral in Berlin. It doesn't quite work, although it's not too bad. It's a little repetitive, but, you know, it, it, it adds a certain sort of level of, oh, it's quite sort of, you know, atmospheric. But, you know, I was more sort of surprised to find that, you know, oh, Rick Waitman, I haven't heard from him for a long time, you know. Um, but like you say, we are clutching at straws here. I'm glad you mentioned the soundtrack because I wrote down a quick note about it and, and I agree, it is very repetitive. But, you know, I just felt like it was such a melodramatic sounding soundtrack. It's very, very like 80s straight to video. That's what yeah. it felt like to me. And this is the 90s, so that's kind of damning. But <laughs> <laughs> it totally has that sound you would expect to see. If you saw a parody of like 1980s, straight to video action movies you would see a score like or hear a score like this being played over the action because it is i mean i may work clips of it into the actual episode of this podcast i think just for fun because it's like really crazy i i here's the thing like it is a radical departure and that's one thing we've seen in the harry palmer films is that they change up the score quite drastically movie to movie so i can admire a franchise for doing that kind of the way that the early Mission Impossible switched up their directors every movie until they got to uh, part five. And I always kind of liked the shift in style. I like the idea of shifting the style of the music for Harry Palmer. But I, I mean, I mean, look, Rick Wakeman is working with a lot of limitations. I don't think there was a lot of uh, money being thrown his way to get maybe an orchestra or really outside of anything beyond a Casio keyboard. <laughs> so I'm sure he did the best he could, but the limitations are very, very laid bare. Um, I, I want to move us on to the next film. So has anyone got any like final points on this film? Well, I would just love to know from the two of you, did you find the plot beyond convoluted to follow? 
it, it was all over the place. And I'm used to, like you mentioned earlier, the funeral in Berlin, you know, it, it is crazy and it's, you know, double, triple twists, but it, it does earn it and it does lay the groundwork for it. This film just flips around because it's a spy film. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, dish, dish uh, the, the movie just for the sake. It's not a great movie. It has moments. The, the, the main thing for me is with the plot. By the end of it, I don't really care who got the drugs, who got the weapon. You know, it's sort of, um, it, it, it drags a bit towards the end. Although, you know, there's a sort of semi-interesting sort of firefight at the end of it uh, in a very sort of muddy Russian station car park. Um, but, you know, by that point, you really don't care. <laughs> and, and, and a good movie, a good movie should make a good movie should make you care and really want to know what's happening right up to the last minute. Yeah, I mean, I did kind of appreciate the muddy locations. That's one thing I liked about the Harry Palmers was they would often be kind of gritty. I like that. But yeah, in terms of this whole plot, I don't think there's anything wrong with the concept of this red, was it the red scare, mm. little plague going to be spawned by these chemicals. Um, I, I wondered if the mixing chemicals thing was some sort of, uh, it's interesting that uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance comes out the same year as this movie. And that's all about mixing chemicals for explosives. Um, I think this one had some fun with that. I don't have a problem with that. Mm. It's just in terms of this whole Russian nesting doll that Harry's carrying around and the character of Michael Gambon's character, Alex. Um, I could not even follow how many steps ahead this man would have to be to get mm. to where he was by yeah. the end. And Michael Gambon, great actor, but he's he's literally phoning this performance in sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's... It's a it's a it's a good it's a, a workable concept in search of a, a decent script and a good director. Definitely, it just sounds like uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull all over again. <laughs> but um, the other note I had was there was that very strange voiceover at the end between uh, Harry and Nick, where they set up the name of the company that they're going to work for in the next film. Which I, I, I thought that was just like a added on last minute thing. I just found that a bit weird. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. That was really strange, that credit sequence of, um, yeah, just like voiceover. I would have to assume that that was an entire scene that they just decided to cut and just played the audio over the credits. It was really weird. I agree. Not to mention the actual company name. I did have a question for Rob before we move on. Is the Tight Fit T-shirt company, is that actually a Dayton reference? Uh, isn't it? Isn't it the Fitzall, or is that the uh, the one in the next movie? They call it Fitzall, but in this they call it Tight Fits in the in the voiceover at the end of the film. Oh, that's right. Yeah, um, I'm not aware of what. Apart from it, a terrible pun, uh, I'm not aware of what the. There's no sort of obvious link there. I think certainly not to the other movies. I'm not aware of. Well, that's a shame. It's not funny, and it's actually not connected to anything either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. Um, quick fire round is bullet to Beijing making the knock list Rob sadly no Cam I, no I mean this is a movie that it just doesn't have any of the ambition of the others it feels very bottom drawer compared in terms of the storytelling and filmmaking so no not a chance uh, that's two no's and for me it's also a no it, you know you've got Michael Caine he's I feel like trying a little bit to be Harry Palmer it's nice to see him playing the character that we've all grown fond of, but I, there's nothing to gain from this film. Yeah. Right. Well, that brings us over to Midnight in St. Petersburg. Uh, let me read the quick synopsis for that. Midnight in St. Petersburg. 
Harry Palmer heads a private investigation business based in Moscow. His associates are Nikolai Nick Petrov, ex-CIA agent Craig, and ex-KGB colonel Gradsky. They take on the job of finding 100 grams of weapons-grade plutonium stolen from the Russian government, though they don't know the identity of the client. Mm. Dum, dum, dum. Uh, well, these films were done back-to-back, but Cam, do you have anything different on this one? Not really. Um, this one has a different director. It's His name's Douglas Jackson. He was actually an Oscar nominee for Best Short Subject in the Live Action category at the 1970 Oscars for a movie called Blake, he did, a short subject. He is a documentarian. He also worked in TV a lot and a ton of B-movies and TV movies over the course of his career. We have the same writer, um, the exec producer, Harry Allen Towers, overseeing this. But um, I I could find little nuggets, and maybe Rob can confirm this, but... The idea was like Bullet to Beijing would be sort of the major movie. And then this was sort of the quickie one they also shot as well. But the whole idea was that Bullet to Beijing was going to be the one that would get a theatrical and this one maybe more so just entirely directed towards TV. I'm not completely sure. That's broadly correct. My understanding uh, is that it's, uh, I mean, what's, what we forgot to mention both the first film and this one is it's, uh, it's a Canadian Russian movie mm. which is a very rare combination um the, the this movie midnight in petersburg i believe was the, the backers were showtime network which is one of the growing this was at an era when cable tv in uh, north america was was growing apace and i think this was their sort of uh, um yeah the, uh, i guess the idea was that if the movie did well they'd have something else to show on their cable uh, network um so it, it's like I say, and there's a, there is a suggestion I've read in a couple of books. There's a suggestion that basically this was made out of the, all the sort of stuff that was on the cutting room floor. I don't think it's as quite as sort of simple as that, but clearly they were made not just back to back, but probably made at the same time because there's a lot of the, I think one or two of the extras look familiar. There's clearly some of the act, the same sort of broad group of actors from the first film, the same location. So it, it, it's um it has the uh, all the hallmarks of uh, a sort of uh, uh, something that the accountants on the film recommended. Yeah. It certainly uses some of the same sets as well, uh, like you say, Rob. Like the bar is definitely the same bar in both films. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of crossover. Probably the there. same dancers, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, probably, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, this movie, in terms of its release, um, showed up on home video in, as you know, like the other one, UK, Europe, Japan um, in 96, and then showed on TV in North America in 1998. So definitely delayed there again. But um, that's really about it in terms of the behind the scenes. Just that this was kind of the the minor production tacked onto the other one. And I think that's very telling um, when you look at the runtime. You know, the first one's like an hour 40 mm. and this one's like 125 or something. Thankfully. <laughs> As listeners will dis- well, t- understand, we're not talking about two Oscar winning movies here, but of the two... I actually preferred Midnight in St. Petersburg. Really? Because essentially what the direct, what the producers have done is remade essentially the same film because it's a sort of another sort of a, um, shot in the same location, brought in the same cast. There's another um, spy cliche. This time it's plutonium rather than um, a sort of bio weapon. 
but essentially somebody is stealing it somebody's setting up a deal and there's going to be a shootout so you know um of the of the two variations of that cliche i i sort of you know i thought this was the slightly better movie oh that's it's not saying much but it's slightly better interesting that's fascinating i i, I mean i'm not going to hide what i feel about this film I, if no one has any background i'll just jump right into our thoughts yeah go ahead yeah, yeah sure. this film feels like exactly how i've how i've read about it it is the off cuts it is that second Anchorman film, not the actual Anchorman 2, but the one that came with the DVD that's like an hour and a half of off clippings from the film that they just sort of piece together with voiceover work. Oh, right. Um, I forget what it's called. And I I genuinely struggled because this one felt even less like it was to do with Harry Palmer and more to do with, well, their, their fits all agency and by, you know, by extension, uh, Jason Connery's character of Nick. I couldn't give him monkeys. <laughs> I also really honed in on the fact, like you could tell that this one was the more the bargain basement of the two, because just in terms of the plotting, it's incredibly basic where you, you know, have this kidnapping of um, Nick's girlfriend, Tatiana. Um, and then also the plutonium. It's just like, I could figure out how these two things were linked almost immediately. And the movie didn't try to pull the rug out from my, like the previous one. Like the, it really felt like with um, bullet to Beijing, they were at least trying to make a, you know, really uh, heavily encrypted spy film. Whereas this one, they were just like, eh, we got these actors. Uh, what's, what's the MacGuffin plutonium. Sounds good. Let's just run with yeah. that. And uh, I can kind of see where Rob's coming from though, in terms of just like, it's breezy. It's 90 minutes. Um, you kind of get to like live in this world a little more. And I did kind of enjoy because these movies were shot back to back, you have all the same supporting characters popping up throughout. And I just appreciated getting to revel in sort of the Harry Palmer world a little bit, just, you know, because a lot of the other movies, they would just drop characters movie to movie. And in here we had them all back. Luis is back. Um, you know, the, the Russian mafia dude, the CIA agent, they're all back. And I kind of enjoyed that aspect. But in terms of the plotting, I mean, by the time they wound up at that rickety looking film studio, which I couldn't help but wonder if that was the film studio Michael Caine was complaining about the toilets in. Um, <laughs> I was just... I suspect I it was. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. I, I think it was. I think it was. Yeah. Um, that was where I just was like, okay, we're really in the dregs here, people. <laughs> that's, that's quite meta at that point, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with any of the points any of the race. Like you say, when I say it says uh, I preferred the film, it's only marginally better, uh, and it's a sort of you know, very thin margin. But you know, I think there's there's a couple of things. Like, as I say, it's 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 a remake almost of the same movie. It has its moments, and, and you know, uh, Harry Palmer is still Harry Palmer. But I think in this film, he's uh, he's even more sort of uh, he looks even more out of shape and dishevelled than in the first movie, and he's. Uh, if you remember, you know, think back to the sort of first three films, how stylish the original character was, or what the character was originally. Uh, the, the in this uh, second movie, he wears a particularly terrible anorak, which mm. no, you know, no, no leading man should ever wear an anorak in a movie. I don't even know what an anorak is, to be fair. <laughs> uh, I don't know what they call him in North America. Cool, uh, sort of. A... And you call yourself a co-host of a spy podcast. You know I know what right? anorak is. So embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed. I'm crawling under my desk right now. 
<laughs> the big coats that they always wear, like, you know, what the Fox Mulder has on every suit. Oh, a trench coat? Sure. Okay. Like, uh, by extension, yeah, kind of that, but yeah, that'll do. <laughs> okay. I'm not a stylish fellow, it should be fair. <laughs> Can confirm. Neither is Harry Palmer in this movie. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are a couple of sort of things I noted down that made, made me actually laugh. And I guess in a sort of serious movie, that's probably not a good sign. But, you know, there were two things I noted down, one of which is very early in the movie, there is a, a new hero uh, on the screen, which is a dog. Mm, yes. Uh, Harry, in the first early scenes, Harry Palmer receives a, 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 what looks like a very unthreatening letter, which they run a Geiger counter on, realizes some sort of bomb. Uh, <laughs> go figure. Throws it out the window. It's picked up by a dog who then takes it down a dark alley. Two seconds later, there's a huge explosion. You, as an audience, you would think, oh, my God, the poor dog is dead. And then three seconds later, the dog emerges unscathed. It's unintentionally funny, but that was sort of a bit of levity in a sort of otherwise quite dour movie. And the other thing I enjoyed about this movie, and such I wrote it down to bring to this discussion, is it's one of the sort of, uh, again, unintentionally funny, but also quite memorable lines of dialogue I've ever listened in a movie, which is when Harry... Uh, is lifted on the streets by a couple of thugs and thrown into the back of a Zill limousine. And I think it's uh, Yuri is in the back of the uh, the limousine. And he says the immortal line, don't squash my bananas. <laughs> now that in itself is worth uh, watching the movie for because to hear Harry pa- the great Sir Michael Caine as Harry Palmer say, don't squash my bananas. <laughs> is, uh, you know, I wrote it down. It was worth writing down, I think. Yeah, well, like, throughout both of these movies, he throws a lot of, like, oh, bloody hell, and, you know, that sort of thing. But to hear him actually say a line like that made me laugh. Um, as for the dog scene, I, I believe me, I laughed, too, at that dog scene. I thought it was hilarious, but, uh, and not for necessarily the right reasons. But I did wonder, in the world of Harry Palmer, which is a more cynical world than, say, the Bond, you know, franchise, I feel like the dog should have blown up. <laughs> not that I'm, not that I want to be the guy. This is the hill I'm going to die on: is killing animals on screen. But it, to me, that seems more like the pessimistic worldview of Harry Palmer that something like this would happen. And then you get the sort of like, oh, he had a rough day. Sure. <laughs> yes, Scott. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, like I just feel like. In a lot of the more Hollywood films, of course, the dog is going to survive. But in a Harry Palmer world, I feel like it is that sort of downbeat, you know, nothing really good ever happens kind of world. So it kind of made sense to me when it happened. And then when they chickened out on it, I said, oh, okay, well, fair enough, I guess. It's worth noting is the dog gives one of the better performances. Truth. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. Um, I, I, I... One interesting thing I noted down, well, two things I've got noted down. Firstly, is this one feels kind of like a buddy cop story with with Harry and Nick. Yeah, I kind of like that. They had, I'm not going to say they've got good dialogue because they sure don't, but the two of them seem to like each other. Like there's a little bit of a breezy chemistry there. It's not exactly the stuff of legends. It's not Riggs and Murtaugh in Lethal Weapon or something, but Mm. it was pleasant enough that I wished we got more of it because they did separate them at a certain point. And I think the movie suffers for that a bit. Yeah. I I would like to have seen a bit more of that. I didn't, I do not want to see the uh, Jason Connery spinoff 
but having them together on screen with with you know Michael Caine playing the boss and Nick going out and doing some missions, I could have maybe you know watched that maybe. Sure, and you got the team there too, the CIA guy Craig and um, you know the Russian guy. I think you've got something. Yeah, and the only other thing I noticed, and and this really does sort of bring it home that this is the you know direct to VHS DVD spin-off film the last bit the dregs that they've sort of brought together is it hasn't even got Mia Sara in it no mm. well you've got Tatiana in this one right I, so I guess that's the female lead being brought over for this one but like she was main cast in the first one and she yeah. just disappears no mention I was just gonna say the other sort of interesting in inverted commas female character in the this second movie is this uh journalist brandy <laughs> i don't know if that's brandy with an i or brandy with a y but um again it's you know, it's, it's an interesting spy movie cliche you know this sort of interesting journalist the sort of he's got the ear to the ground um you know but what um her character is not particularly well developed and i think what um really brought it home to me quite how sort of little thought they gave to her character uh she eventually um without spoiling anything she eventually betrays harry palmer um is when the uh she uh her, she's tasked with getting harry palmer to sort of meet up this is why the midnight at st petersburg comes in here there is a, a the deal for the plutonium is going down by friday midnight uh, she's uh, charged with getting harry palmer to the location to effectively be shot or killed at least. Um, her method is uh, there's armed guards at the front of this, uh, or private security guards at the front of this uh, movie theater, uh, uh, sorry, film uh, studios. And her solution is uh, she looks at Harry Palmer and flashes the press. You know, she says, here's the answer. She has a press badge. They drive up to the uh, 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 drive up to the the gate with the armed guard. She flashes her press card credentials. Great, yeah, he opens it up straight away. No no questions asked. That that struck me as the most preposterous uh, part of the film. But, you know, um, it's just another example of where, I suppose, with a little bit of thought and attention, you know, uh, that sort of type of character could have, you know, th there's something there. Journalists are always sort of interesting characters to, to portray and play, but they gave all of three minutes thought with that character, I think. Well, here's a notion, and maybe this is maybe this is where our problems of the film comes from, apart from you know, every other problem, is that we expect more from a Harry Palmer story, but this is so you know, base level, not a lot of thought put into it that we're not only bored by it, but we're just disappointed. Yeah. I agree. I think there's a degree, there's a degree to which I think extending your point, you could uh, well, there's a case to be made for saying, does it actually um, almost like slightly besmirch the sort of reputation of the character? Um, I don't think so in the end because most people haven't seen this, but it's a it's rather like sort of uh, um, I don't know, growing up uh, having a favourite uncle, and then when you're an adult going to see him and he's sort of uh, dishevelled, living in a hovel with a sort of you know sort of cooking on a one ring stove, you know, it's sort of. Um, it's disappointing and rather slightly sad. Stop! Stop! Stop describing our futures here. Yeah, <laughs> future. <laughs> Rob's describing my apartment right now. <laughs> That's why you turn the camera off. That makes sense. Yeah. Now. <laughs> the shame. The shame. Um, I just sorry. I wanted to touch on Brandy for a second, the reporter character, which is one of my favorite cliches, um, especially in this era. I wonder if this is the Ninja Turtles uh, effect, but. It's you have this journalist that runs around and 
you, we never see them actually doing any work whatsoever. They're never taking notes. They're never pulling out tape recorders, but they just keep running around saying, I got to get a story. I got to get a story. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> like, what is it? What is this woman's beat? <laughs> It would only be less cliched if she wore a uh, a trilby hat with the word press tucked into the, the ribbon band. <laughs> oh my God, I would have loved that. That would have been amazing. Yeah, it, it, it just kind of made me laugh. And the fact that she is uh, evil in the end, it's like, okay, I guess. I was going to say, though, as to maybe why Mia Sarah wasn't brought back, I don't know if they would have been able to afford her, quite honestly, because um, I think the, the two actresses who show up in the second part, um, Tanya Jackson and Michelle Burke, I don't think they would be as expensive as a Mia Sarah would be. So that was probably just it. Hmm. I, I could probably guarantee that. Yeah. Well, okay. Any final thoughts on the film? I haven't got anything myself. I have one major one. There is no like climax to this movie. We get to the scene in the movie studios. Um, basically, they all mm. duck out the back door and then it cuts to them at the bar being like, well, everyone was arrested. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Exactly. It's it's not the great. It's not it's not a thrilling ending. I found myself like just scratching my beard. It's just confused as to how we got to that point. Because I admit, at that point, I was already a bit like wasn't enjoying the film, wasn't that invested. And then they've got this sort of tense moment, and then we're in the bar drinking vodka. I just thought, did I fall asleep again? Like the Bourne Legacy? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, it felt like the ending of a TV show where they're all yeah. like, okay, everyone revo- involved was arrested, and it's like, what? Like. Even the Michael Gambon character who we've been following for two movies, like this character doesn't get any sort of ending. We just get him slamming a phone down. Um, it, it felt like the sort of thing where you go, everyone's arrested. And then the next week, you know, Alex could be out on bail causing trouble all over again. Very, uh, very Scooby-Doo. Yeah. There's a good line, I think, that kind of sums up this movie, though, where they're at the circus. And Michael Caine says, the spy game's a lot like the circus. Nothing is what it seems. And it's usually worse. <laughs> You should have led this whole episode with that. I know, right? No, oh, well. Uh, I, I will point out this film has probably one of the most budget-looking casinos I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah. Anyone yeah. pick up on that? That was bad. It, it was, then, you know. Yeah, I, it's just so weird to see Michael Caine in a film like this. If you can call it a film. Yeah. You can really see the downgrade in terms of just the money to be spent on the first one mm. versus the second. So, you know. Uh, you could tell they loved their travelogue shots, though, because the entire credits were played out over these like loving shots of uh, Russian scenery. So those were kind of nice. It's cheap. Yep, it was. <laughs> um, well, that's it for me, Cam. I think that sums me up as well for um, Midnight in St. Petersburg. Rob? Uh, yeah, I have nothing else to add other than it's been a, a, an enjoyable discussion about two not so enjoyable but sort of interesting movies. Well, let's let's wrap it up and pivot into something slightly more interesting. Um, Midnight in St. Petersburg, knock list. Rob? No. <laughs> Easy enough, Cam? Yet. Uh, no. <laughs> it, it doesn't need to be any more complex than that. It, it was going to be a bit of an ask that any of these films made it when we said no to Funeral in Berlin or to Billion Dollar Brain. But, you know, as such, the dossier on Bullet to Beijing and Midnight in St. Petersburg are closed and neither of them are making the knock list. But before we wrap up the episode, you know, this is the second of our franchises that have come to a close so far. So I think we've got, you know, we've got the Len Dating expert with us. I want to take a minute to sort of look back at these five films, if we call them the last two films, 
and just really take a minute to think about our thoughts on the films altogether. So, you know, Cam, why don't you lead us off? Well, I just want to know from Rob, you know, when he looks at this collection of five films, does the Harry Potter franchise feel like one that they figured out? Like, where did it kind of go wrong, do you think? Well, it probably had the potential for maybe one or one more. I mean, certainly they never filmed... Uh, although there were some sort of early sort of discussions about it, they never filmed Horse Underwater, which, you know, given it's got submarines and cook- and heroin and sort of, you know, uh, beautiful beautiful scenery in Portugal, it had the potential to be a good movie. I think maybe that with the three films, let's consider the three films as a sort of group, mm-hmm. you know, over a period of a few years, I think they, I, I like all three of them. Indeed, I like Billion Dollar Brain. Certainly, I think uh, Funeral in Berlin is the best of the three, from my, from my view. I think probably they just ran out of steam a little bit because I think they're so tied up and the Harry Palmer character is so centrally linked to um, Michael Caine that had there been scope for filming one of the other, you know, something like uh, An Expensive Place to Die, perhaps, um, one of the other uh, novels uh, ostensibly featuring the same unnamed spy, if Harry, if Michael Caine wasn't on board, as I say, I think it's it's very difficult to, to, for the the viewing public, I guess, to sort of perhaps um, uh, maybe to connect with a new version of Harry Palmer. Of course, they've done it with Bond in a sense. With there are now you know six, I think six isn't it or six or seven different Bond actors. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether that would have been the case if there had been further Harry Palmer movies. Well, here's a question. Was James Bond in many ways the enemy to a Harry Palmer franchise? Because Harry Seltzman obviously launches the Ipcris file and produces the first three. But when you look at like a lot of the spy movies that are popular in the 60s, it's stuff like the Flint movies, the Matt Helm films, things that are taking the more fun, you know, escapist elements of James Bond. And it feels like the public was really latching onto those when I look at The Ipcris File, a movie I really loved, I thought The Ipcris File was fantastic. I liked Funeral in Berlin a lot. I wasn't as big on Billion Dollar Brain. But nonetheless, like they have a very specific vibe that I really enjoy. And I'm just wondering like, if Harry Palmer was almost that franchise, it would have been maybe a little more successful had it maybe started in the 70s, which was more of an era for that sort of you know gritty spy storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fair, it's a fair point for discussion. I think uh, you know, uh, these are all hypotheticals. Who knows what Harry, if Harry Zaltzman had had more, you know, uh, perhaps more funding for a, a fourth movie. Who knows? But I mean, one observation I've always had is, uh, is it, I think it's very difficult to uh, think about the character of Harry Palmer, but also to think about the movies and and the books outside of the era in which they were written, uh, the sixties. I think for me, they're and I think in a good way, they're very tied to that era. Um, and I think the character of Harry Palmer in terms of his mannerisms, his sort of uh, uh, um, what would now be termed problematic approach to women, um, is very 60s uh, and and it fits that era. And, and the age at which Michael Caine was when he was playing the character sort of fits. It all sort of comes together in a sort of intense period, sort of two to three years of, of filmmaking where the character exploded and maybe as i say there's a degree to which uh as these two movies we've discussed shows is maybe there's a everything has a lifespan well i mean it's 
interesting though because they are making a Ipcris file reboot. Like they are bringing the Ipcris file back to TV. Yeah, and I'm I'll be very curious to see if it's a period piece or if they tr- just try to update it entirely. But I do think I mean there's a lot of um, wealth of material uh, in you know in Len Dayton's novels as well to the character of you know Harry Palmer or the unnamed protagonist in the novels. Um, it feels like there's a lot there. It just hasn't quite maybe struck the way it should. Well, you're absolutely correct. They're currently filming now in Liverpool in England is one of the locations for, which is doubling for London, essentially, I guess, in a new Ipcrest file movie being produced for ITV, which is the commercial main commercial channel in the UK. Uh, it is being filmed in a period, so it is being set in the 60s. They're not seeking to update it or make it... Uh, you know, uh, bring it up to date in that sense. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think it's going to be the key thing with 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 any sort of readapt or adaptation of an existing movie or genre or series is I think you've got to go into it with an open mind. Clearly, Michael Caine is not playing Harry Palmer in the TV series. He's a young actor. He's been on Peaky Blinders. Uh, he looks about sixteen, but he's apparently thirty-two. Mm. Um, if he if he gives a good performance, if he gets the right director, if he can make it his own, I mean he's still wearing glasses, which is you know if they, if that wasn't the case, I would probably not watch it. There's a key, but you know he's got opportunities to carve his name out. A lot of the sort of audience that they will be pitching the the TV series to probably hasn't heard of or watched a Harry Palmer movie. Um, so if they can get it right, if they can get the glamour of the sixties, if they can get the sort of the the Cockney accents, the class element to it. Um, if they can get it sufficiently glamorous enough that it has international appeal, because uh, I'm sure you know in this, this era of streaming, uh, there will certainly be an international market for a sort of a, um, uh, a period spy drama, which I guess is what it will become now. Um, I'm reasonably optimistic. Um, you know, they say never go back, but perhaps it's a case of not going back, but going in a different way to the same uh, or a different direction from the same starting point. Because I'll be, they're going to have, I think, about six one-hour episodes, something like that, which obviously gives them much more time for character development, for some of the sort of uh, the snappier dialogue and some of the sort of... Uh, um, office sort of um, the elements of sort of bureaucracy that and um, sort of office relationships that uh, you know particularly with Harry and Jean uh, they were actually sort of really important in the first movie so you know I'm optimistic I'm uh, I'm quite looking forward to it actually as someone who wasn't a big fan of the Ipris file maybe that's a bit of a strange thing to admit but I just you know, there's this there's this section of the James Bond community which is, I know is a different franchise that are really calling for James Bond to go back to the sort of 50s and 60s where Ian Fleming based his books. Um, and because and just that vibe of the time, the fun factor, everything's so grim, dark now with, with a lot of media and James Bond films are, are one of those. Um, so I'm quite interested to see what it does going back to it. I certainly would not have wanted them to try and update the Ipcris file for now. I think that would have been a disaster. And I think having six one-hour movies, television has changed now. It's it's far more cinematic. I think they really could uh, knock it out of the park. And I think uh, some of my problems with Ipcris File was actually more to do with like cinematography and things like that. As a part, uh, not but not like Michael Caine's choices. I really liked his portrayal of Harry. So I'm hoping they manage to keep that that going in this one. 
Well, I'm actually curious. This is a question for Rob because I think he's the person to uh, answer this one. Mm-hmm. When we look at James Bond, um, what the general audience considers to be James Bond, a lot of that comes obviously from Sean Connery, uh, you know, and then the people that inherited the crown after, you know, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, Daniel Craig. How much, based on both the movies and the uh, the books, how much of the personality of the Harry Palmer uh, character is derived from the films and like Michael Keaton's performance versus the novels? Um, I think uh, of the three films, uh, certainly. The, the Keaton's performance is pretty close. I mean, it's not exact, but it's pretty close to the unnamed spy as uh, is portrayed in the books. I mean, there's a couple of obvious things where, or where, you know, in the film, uh, in the books rather, the unnamed spy uh, is from Burnley, uh, which is in the north of England, rather than Michael Caine, who is com- the most Cockney of Cockneys. Mm. Uh, and for those of you who are international listeners, a Cockney is somebody from sort of uh, the rougher parts of London, let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, in t- I think what does come across in both uh, in the film, it's very sort of, I think, central to what's in the movies is the sense in which you have a class of, um, you know, the old guard, the uh, the, the bureaucrats, the high ups in uh, WOOCP, and given that this was happening in the sixties, the era of the Beatles and Flower Power, Women's Lib, etc., you have the interesting uh, sort of juxtaposition of that sort of ex-colonial sort of administrator era, uh, a class of people, and the sort of young upstarts of which. Uh, the unnamed spy as Harry Palmer as he became is a great example. So I think it's it's pretty close. And hopefully, like you say, I think in this new TV series, I'm hopeful that a lot of that sort of spark, uh, sparkiness, the sort of spunkiness of the 60s uh, um, in the fashions, the sort of lighting, the cars, uh, uh, all those sort of elements. Um, I think hopefully, you know, I'm quite, again, quite confident that it's, it has all, I mean, the key thing is, is the book. And that's why I guess the film was successful. The book, it's quite complicated, but it has a lot in there, and I think there's a lot in between the lines in terms of the dialogue, the, the characters, the characterizations, the relationships. If they can bring that across in the TV series, I think they should have a hit, I imagine. I'll ask you a quick question, Rob, just to sort of slowly wrap us up. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, me and Cam are also Star Trek fans? apart from sort of spy movies. And for a very long time, Star Trek fans were sort of long-suffering. There was no more Star Trek. It was basically a dead property. And now it's sort of, it's been revived somewhat. There's questions there, but we won't get into it. If the ITV show hadn't have been pitched, and it never happened, would you have been happy with how Len's work had been brought to the screen with these five films? Uh, in terms of the, this particular character, yeah, I think on the whole... Um... I like them. I think a lot of people like them. They're not everyone's cup of tea, but I think Harry Palmer um, is a useful addition to the canon in terms of spy fiction as portrayed in the movies and on TV. Um, what In terms of actually Len's uh, body of work overall, the key thing for me is, uh, uh, well, I'm still, we're still waiting, six years after it was announced, is if they do eventually get off the ground the uh, TV adaptation of Game, Set and Match, for which the company Clark and Well Films are still holding the rights, but it's done absolutely nothing with them. Um, if they can get that right, because I actually I think of the two uh, spies central to Len Dayton's oeuvre, his body of work over sort of fifty years, 
I think Bernard Sampson is the stronger uh, character and the stronger sort of spy archetype. And if they can get that right, build on the sort of mixed legacy of the 1988 TV series, which has never been released commercially. Uh, it's another, and that's for another discussion, perhaps. But uh, if they can get that right, then I think, you know, uh, as a writer and as a sort of creator, I think that there, that would be a great body of work uh, uh, to represent uh, the books we, uh, that we've enjoyed. Hmm. Okay, I've got one more question. Cam, have you got any? No, go ahead, Scott. Last question, then. If you were to recommend one Harry Palmer film and one Len Dayton book uh, to new people, new to sort of spy films or new to Len Dayton's work, what ones would you go for? I know obviously Funeral and Berlin is your favourite of the films, but we're looking at more from a, an entry viewpoint because a lot of our listeners might not have seen any of these films at this stage. Start at the beginning. I think The Ipcrest File absolutely is a great movie. And I think as an introduction to the character, as an introduction to the style of the movie and, and, and the characters and the, so the genre, it's a great start. In terms of books, I would uh, point uh, either new, new readers in the direction of Berlin Game, because for me, I think that's the start of a 10-book odyssey with one of uh, the great sort of spy fiction characters in Bernard Sampson. So those would be my two recommendations. Very nice, very nice. Now, Scott, I have a question for you. Oh. Now that we've wrapped up Harry Palmer, and I think it's been a really fun journey. And one, when I picked this franchise, I didn't realize kind of how interesting a journey it would be. I had heard of the Ipcris file, but I didn't really know anything beyond that. And I think it's been really interesting podcasting, just you know, going over these films because they are so different from one another, with the exclusion of the last two that we covered in this episode. <laughs> but how do you rank these films now that we've kind of wrapped up? Harry Palmer. Wow. Okay. Um, do you want to go from worst to best? Sure. Okay. It's almost diminishing returns for me. I would say it's probably last place midnight in St. Petersburg. Very quickly followed up with bullet to Beijing. I would then put in third place, billion dollar brain second place. And this is where the people come after me is I would still put it Chris file. Mm-hmm. It's the only one of our films that made the knock list out of the five films. But for me, I found Funeral in Berlin slightly more interesting and more approachable for me. Right, right. What about I mean, you, Cam? For me, it's the diminishing returns. It literally runs, you know, five to one. Like, it, there's, uh, there's no bouncing around the way there was with Men in Black. To me, the weakest is Midnight in St. Petersburg. And we go right backwards to the Ipcris file being my favorite of the group at number one. I mean, there is a reason that I have the Ipcris file on Blu-ray. It yeah. is a fantastic film. I just, this is bits of it I didn't like, but mm -hmm. I can still appreciate the art. Uh, I don't think there's a very good Blu-ray release of Funeral in Berlin. Mm, there is a Blu-ray here in North America, I believe. Um, I don't own it, but uh, it is, I believe there, we do have one. Mm. Okay. I, I, how would you, would you rank them? Rob, are you closer to me or closer to Cam? Um, uh, probably closer to Cam, I think. Mm. Okay. Well, I think that about wraps up our Harry Palmer, Bullet to Beijing, Midnight in St. Petersburg, triple bill, basically, of discussion. But I really want to thank you, Rob, for you know coming on the show. Clearly more educated than both of us combined. 
especially about Len Dating, but just in general. Um, so, genuinely, thank you for joining us. That's very kind of you, uh, gentlemen. It's been a blast. Um, and where can the listeners find uh, more from yourself? Well, uh, the website I've run for 10 years is DaytonDossier.net. And if you're on Facebook and Twitter, uh, just do a quick search under that uh, title and you'll find me and a small community of other spy fiction fans. And I would really recommend anyone who's enjoyed discovering the Ipcris file, perhaps through this podcast, or wants to take the dive into Dayton's work, follow along with the Dayton dossier, because I think it'll really inform your journey. And there's a lot of just fun uh, little nuggets of information there that will enrich the whole experience. I mean, I certainly used it for my research for this film and the previous ones. So, it, you know, it's, your, it's the go-to for Len Dayton. So I, I tip my hat to you, Rob. That's very kind. Thank you. Uh, now, before we talk about what we're doing next week, I want to throw to a quick message from the Infectious Groove podcast. Here you go. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jam, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. That's right. That's the Infectious Groove podcast. They have some really great uh, episodes out there. They also have a great YouTube channel as well. They do a lot with vinyls and things like that. So check them out. Infectious Groove. Um, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we are going to be tackling Tenet, Christopher Nolan's uh, 2020 blockbuster um, some interesting baggage attached to that movie, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking through this very confusing movie with you. Sorry, Cam, I can't quite hear you. There's this really loud music playing in my ears. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I need to just have muffled dialogue throughout that entire part, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's how you sound all the time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that's right so uh, your mission listeners should you choose to accept it is to check out tenet if you haven't already and join us next week and you can of course follow us discreetly at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners don't break the law <laughs>